Welcome everyone to another of Shared Ireland's podcast. Today we are joined by Emma Rennie and Maeve O'Brien. Welcome ladies. Hi, how are you? Maybe uh, could start with yourself. Um, Emma, could you tell our listeners a little bit about who you are, your background, and I suppose maybe what shaped your current political thinking? Oh, okay. So, so my name's Emma Rennie. I'm originally from Moyard in West Belfast. Um, my background is in criminology, where I studied at Queen's University, Belfast, and I did my master's over at KU Leuven in Belgium, where I have now I've been living in Brussels since 2012. I mainly work in project management, in development, child protection rights, and gender equality projects, uh, mainly EU-funded projects as well. And in my spare time, I'm an activist with Young Families Europe, Brussels Irish for Choice. And I work for the Brussels Binder, which is a, sort of like a women-led project of mainly policy shapers, in a way, but that they mainly work in think tanks. And their aim is to get women's voices platformed in policy debates. So basically, I'm a full-time feminist. Very good, very good. <laughs> yeah. um, well, discuss more about them subjects as the podcast continues. Yeah. Maeve, can I ask you the same question? I suppose who you are, your background, what shaped your political thinking and what your current role in your job is? Or Sure, absolutely. Hello there. Um, well, I'm Dr Maeve O'Brien and um, I lecture in English literature at the University of Ulster. Um, I wrote a PhD on um, Sylvia Plath primarily, but it really turned into um, kind of a feminist examination of language. Um, so that was a big influence on me in terms of my political development, um, understanding how we communicate, understanding you know ways that perhaps women's voices aren't amplified and that the way we express ourselves in general is perhaps um, you know male dominated. Mm-hmm. Um, I also work in the women's sector in the northwest in Derry City, um, a women's group. We are our mo is to amplify and empower women in the northwest. So that would range from Coleraine to Derry City to Straban. We do a variety of, um, I suppose you would call them soft skills, so your crocheting and your upcycling. But those are, um, you know, a good hook to get women in to involve them in, in more complex kind of courses, such as tackling paramilitarism in communities and um, empowering in terms of courses. So we, Emma, um, we would do a lot of EU-funded projects as well. Mm-hmm. I'm running one at the minute. The Pact project. Yeah. It's about peace and conflict transformation. We're specifically looking for rural women, uh, women in the northwest, to come together and talk about, you know, how to strategize better, how to how to build peace, because um, it's a journey. You know, mm-hmm. um, peace building. It's 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 not a sector. This is what I'm kind of coming to realize. It's not an established sector. It is something that we should be on a journey. Mm-hmm. And and women, as I believe, change agents mm-hmm. um, are are very important to be involved in that conversation. <laughs> Other than that, I'm an activist with Alliance for Choice. Uh, um, and I guess I'm a bit of a nerd. I just like to read and go do uh, seaweed baths and swim in the sea. So I'm, that's, that's really how I spend my spare time. I, I actually enjoy seeing your tweets of you going like <laughs> swimming, and I'm like, oh, it must be freezing. And it's cool. <laughs> it's very cool. But you don't realise you're alive, you know, until you're yes. in the sea and you come yeah. out. Oh, it's fabulous now. Rain, hail, or shine. <laughs> very good. Very good. Even even in. Um, in, in the winter time, you yep. sell mm-hmm. just hardcore. <laughs> you are. There's a wee place in Port Stewart, the Herring Pond. Um, I live up in Port Stewart during term time, you know, because okay. I'm lecturing at the uni. And um, there's actually a group of women that do it every morning at uh, 7 a.m. and every evening at 5 p.m. And the oldest lady in the group is 92. My God. So, I mean, I'm by no means hardcore. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Okay, ladies, thanks for that um, brief introduction, and no doubt we'll talk more about that as we continue. Emma, can I maybe just um, start with yourself? As an Irish citizen based in Brussels, uh, the EU capital, um, how does it make you feel that the North has been taken out of the EU against the wishes of the majority here? Well, I remember the night. I sat up all night watching the results come in and I just remember crying, just crying as they were coming in and thinking, oh my God, what are they doing to us? And my boyfriend was in bed at this time and I, I was meant to go into work the next day and I just called in sick because I was just so sick hearted. When, you, when you're in Brussels, when you're in that environment, it is a bit of a bubble in the sense that it is very multicultural, very cosmopolitan, eurocratic in a lot of ways. 
but you do see the work that goes on there to try and actually trickle into the wider Europe mm -hmm. in regards to the funding. It, there is so many problems with the institutions. I think it's healthy to, to criticise the institutions, of course. Mm -hmm. But let's not ignore that it is not just an economic project, but also a social project. And for me, when I see Brexit targeting this part of it specifically, it really, it really hurts me. I work in the social sector. I work with EU funding projects. So for me, it felt very personal, not just as an Irish citizen, but also yeah. as an activist. Mm -hmm. And the goals that I'm trying to achieve with my output, my daily outputs. And as an Irish citizen, I also felt like the vote itself was very much an English vote. The numbers were never going to stack up for again. It was always going to be in English, England deciding for Scotland. Even if Wales did vote yes, um, they didn't. Um, it was just, it just felt like it wasn't my decision. It wasn't our decision. It was never going to be our decision. So I felt really hurt very annoyed to this day actually and it's one of the reasons but it's kind of pushed me over the edge in terms of I guess you can say a, a radicalizing factor in the sense that I've now become very ardent in wanting the United Ireland and New Ireland mm -hmm. and, and and you say that um, you it's now kind of sharpened your focus on a United Ireland a New Ireland a shared mm -hmm. Ireland and is that coming at it from the angle that if we have got a united ireland that we will be back in the eu is that the angle you're coming to be honest i think it actually comes from more of an angle that we would just have more greater say over our own lives our own destinies okay so i guess it's just I, again this relates back that i don't think we would ever we were ever going to have a meaningful input in the decision of whether or not we were going to stay in the eu i think it was more that element of course going back going in back joining the eu again is Big, but it's just more the fact that it's our decision mm -hmm. that is more important to me. Yeah. yeah. Maeve, could I maybe um, pose the same sort of question mm -hmm. to you? How did you feel um, when you heard mm -hmm. the announcement that yes. hey, we're, we're, we're leaving, mm -hmm. whether we like it or not, even though was it 55.8% of mm -hmm. people here and the majority of people in Scotland and Wales mm -hmm. also voted to remain? It was taken out of our hands, as Emma said, by, yes. by the by the population in England. Mm -hmm, just, mm -hmm. How did that make you feel? Well, I think I was quite naive, to be honest. You know, I had friends um, working for the for the Yes uh, campaign in Scotland, and and um, I was supposed to go out actually and campaign um, the Saturday before the election um, or the referendum. But Joe Cox had been murdered that week, and as a mark of respect, oh, yes. um, there was no campaigning. And I think that that's important not to forget the backdrop um, to the referendum, mm -hmm. the, the vile white nationalism and misogyny that was mm -hmm. just being tanked up, um, especially in England. Um, but I was quite naive. I went to bed and Nigel Farage had conceded and woke up three or four in the morning to a barrage of messages and I cried as well, Emma, I did. Do you know, and I uh, really appreciate what you're saying there about, um, you know, the EU itself, it's it's not um, perfect. It's important to challenge um, the institutions. Um, but again, I think socially, I think emotionally, um, what the EU achieved since the end of the Second World War and yeah. the, the peace that has been uh, brokered and that peace journey again, you know, we're talking about peace building as a journey, the road that it was carving out for countries such as Britain, Germany, France to, to, to you know, evolve and, and walk together. Um, it was very, very important work, you know. Um, so, you know, and, and I mean, I, I criticise the EU, their treatment of Greece, for example, you know, it's just against everything that you would stand for as someone who, who's interested in, in, you know, in class issues and, 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 and taking people out of poverty and not subjecting them to austerity. But it was it was damning, you know, and I think um, I think everyone was just the, that day of the um, referendum result, people were stunned. I remember walking about Oma Town. People were just stunned and they had no idea what was going to happen. And, um, you know, there was but there was a sense of people saying, well, did they even think about us? Did they even think about how this was going to affect us? Mm -hmm. And I do remember there was a big debate on ITV and there wasn't one uh, representative from Northern Ireland speaking. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so the the border issue, which is which is the key issue, was completely ignored, and I felt quite angry about that as well, you know. And I think that the fact that the whole process so far has been fudged, we have no real um, knowledge of what's going to happen. I mean, I read the withdrawal agreement the evening it was published. I went to the Northern Ireland section and read that, and you know, you're, you're trying to you're trying to find policy, you're trying to find something to cling on to to work with, um, and and there's just nothing there. I don't know about you, but I feel like emotionally it's so draining right now. Like Brexit fatigue is a real symptom. I'm going to say that I feel like we're all suffering from it. At the beginning, I was so on the ball of keeping up with everything Brexit, but I just felt like for my own well-being and health, mm-hmm. I needed to take a step back and just shut off mm-hmm. and just focus on positive things like like some activism and stuff. Yeah, because. It's just such a toxic environment, and it was starting to make me feel very, very depressed. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I was meant to come home actually in 2016. That was my plan, but my partner's Belgian, and I just didn't know what was going to be the situation with him as well mm-hmm. in regards to EU uh, nationals. I also felt like I didn't want to have to put him through any what I see as unnecessary procedures or processes mm-hmm. just to live in my own country mm-hmm. um, as I don't have to do that in his obviously so yeah there was there was that element too mm-hmm. of it mm-hmm. surely I think, I think there's no doubt that the, the politicians um, especially in England um, they definitely missed the sense that Ireland is a unique situation mm-hmm. here you Absolutely. know like obviously Scotland and Wales and ourselves we all voted to remain but Nobody has a situation like we have here, as you mm-hmm. alluded to, mm-hmm. the, the whole border thing, you know, will there be hard border, will yeah. there not, about customs, about business, mm-hmm. about the agri-food sector, like, you know, there, we, our situation is unique here, mm-hmm. and there was certainly no thought put into us whatsoever, mm-hmm. you know, it came across as if nobody cares about us, yeah. so if we don't stand up and make our own voices mm-hmm. heard, who else is going mm-hmm. to do it, because can we honestly rely on the DUP, can we, you know, can we rely on them cozying up to bed with uh, Theresa May mm-hmm. and now with Boris Johnson? Does Boris really care about us? Mm-hmm. But I think, you know, I definitely take on board all you're saying there. But I think for us, um, that we really need to look at the minutia as well as sort of the, the larger arguments, you know, about Boris, about the DUP as a party. I was um, promoting an EU-funded program at the Fermanagh Show last week in my work for the women's group that I work with in Derry and um, it was very interesting to see Arlene Foster arrived Um, and you know this is a very rural uh, very you know traditional conservative uh, you know event and I just wondered how the Ulster Farmers Union who have came out against Brexit who have said this is going to be detrimental to our rural way of life you know how what's going on there you know, the, the smaller, you know, I think we can lose ourselves in these big, big questions. Um, but it's it's the people who are actually, you know, that are actually on the ground. Mm-hmm. The woman that mm-hmm. that I work with that uh, lives in, in Donegal and travels into Derry every morning. Like, mm-hmm. what is going to happen there? Yeah. And I think but that's where our, our power lies. It's those stories. It's it's unearthing yeah. perhaps members of the Ulster Farm U- Farmers Union, traditional unionists perhaps, yeah. and how this is shaping and changing um, their relationship as well, you know, with, with, with not only with the DUP, but maybe their relationship with, with what it means to be Irish, yeah. you know, and as you say, Emma, the autonomy, being able to make that decision for yourself mm-hmm. well you know um so it's it's interesting you know and i think um you know people are again very traditional in their in their voting ways we know that in northern ireland we look at the recent election results they're so polarized but um you know we're dealing in a we're living in a society that's it's post-conflict we're traumatized people as it is you're throwing this extra, you know, element into mm-hmm. into the ring here, and I do think there's going to be a tipping point. Maybe mm-hmm. I'm hopeful and naive at that, but I feel like at some point something has to give way. If if your livelihood, that you your generations of farming, you know, and it's it's thrown away yeah. on on a whim, um, to, uh, on an, in an act of self harm, um, to stay in the union, yeah. you know, and and you can't feed your children something's going to break mm-hmm. you know and and for, so for me i guess it's it's this division between the elites mm-hmm. 
-hmm. and and I would include you know um, political representatives in Northern yeah. Ireland in this elite yeah. you know who, these ones who are who are content to cosy up with you know uh, Boris Johnson and the like and then you have the people on the ground um, and and I do think that if there's going to be change uh, seismic change then it's going to be everyone it's not just the activists or grassroots it'll be you know the maybe people who have traditionally voted certain ways for decades but this this abhorrent letdown of of your family of your health care of your ability to trade you know it's 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 very dangerous i like the use of the word the elites yeah. i think mm -hmm. that will resonate with most people mm -hmm. sorry emma you were going to say something um sorry <laughs> um i just find that it's interesting to see how disconnected the DUP is from from the people who actually live in this region. It's and this is not a green or orange issue. It's, mm -hmm. it's, it's literally everyone and their granny and their aunt is talking about Brexit and wor worrying about it. And I just find it really shocking sometimes how short-sighted the DUP are being. Uh, politically, tactically, it, it doesn't make sense. But I'm not going to stop them. Let, let them continue. Okay. <laughs> it me. We could, I suppose, discuss Brexit for um, yeah. what is two and a half years. <laughs> but um, we'll move on slightly, but we'll probably come back mm. to it, no doubt. You both were involved in the Repeal the Eighth campaign. Can you maybe tell us how it felt, firstly, to see the referendum result delivered in the South, and secondly, um, see this denial of rights continue here in the north. Mm -hmm. Maeve, do you want to maybe kick us off yeah. on that one? <laughs> no, we can talk for days on this one yes. too. <laughs> uh, the, the, the night that the, um, poll, that the exit poll came in, I was actually in Corfu. I, I, um, I needed a holiday so badly and I thought, you know what, I'm just going to go um, the day of the election because I was frustrated, first of all, that as an Irish citizen from Tyrone, uh, I couldn't vote in a referendum. Very good. On this issue, which which broke my heart, so I just had to leave. So I I, work, I campaigned um, right up to the end, and then just and then just left. And funnily, I was talking to a woman on the plane uh, from the Shankill. She was going on a holiday too, and she turned around now and I said to her, "God, I'm just nervous about the results, you know." And she said, "I know. I hope I hope to God they get it." And I was like, yes, good woman. You know, so it, it was, um, and I'm sure we'll talk about this a lot more, but the cross-community solidarity um, in grassroots mm -hmm. pro-choice activism, it's, it's the way forward, you know, yeah. in my opinion. But the, the night of it, I mean, I was elated to think that Catholic Ireland had voted by six, almost 67% to, to legalise abortion on demand for up to 12 weeks. It's... It, it still takes my breath away. And, and uh, I just noticed the way that you used the word there, Catholic Ireland. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, but that was that was the main, yeah. uh, you know, adversary for yeah. us. You know, yeah. and and actually, if you look at um, uh, you know polls and research that has been done, uh, Fiona Bloomer at Ulster University is very good on on this type of research. But it's uh, PUL communities are much more um, liberal on yeah. the uh, issue of abortion yeah. than than the uh, CNR communities. Um, the DUP would give the illusion that that's that that is not the truth. Uh, that PUL communities are more conservative and against abortion, but that's statistically, it's it's Catholics and Nationalist Republicans that are, um, you know, they're the ones that was was difficult to shift. And you see with the formation of AM2, you know, that that, that sort of uh, uh, anti-choice yeah. Republicanism is is still very much in full swing. But um, so delighted, still pinch myself waking up in the morning. It was. Um, and I want to be very clear about this. Uh, it was the women of Ireland who spearheaded this campaign from the dark days of the X case. You know, there were women fighting and they were never given time in the papers. They were never given any opportunity. They took on the church, the state, the money pumped in from America, yeah. the bravery to stand in a town, a rural Irish town with a wee stall and your handmade flyers and to be spat at. You know, by the vocal minority that we now know, the bravery of the women of Ireland, it astounds me and it gives me so much uh, strength. And on a personal note, I will say, you know, I used to get some abuse, and I'm sure you did, Emma, online. Mm -hmm. Your demands are too much, you know, you're asking too much, you're shrill, you're all the names of the day. Um, and since the 26th of May, I have not had, it's been tumbleweeds now. <laughs> may, have, may have, can I, just before um, we move on, Emma, can I ask you, Maeve, what about the denial of these same rights in the North here? Mm. How does that make you feel as a, as a woman? 
Well, I think, again, it's as a woman and then as an Irish citizen. Yeah. There's maybe two levels there. So if you're dealing with Northern Ireland society very broadly, um, you've got your, your two main communities, your PUL and your CNR, um, and largely CNR identifies as Irish. So you've got that added sort of feeling of injustice, I guess, um, because it's, it's your country. The South and, and this massive liberalisation, the seismic change has occurred and it's the same with marriage equality and, and, yet you, and you participated in it but yet you're not um, you know, receiving any of the, uh, any of the positive the, the benefits. Yes, yeah. exactly. And I will say that the anti-choice movement has really, really intensified in the North since repeal. The, the aggression and the, the money been pumped in again. You can see it with their manufactured posters, you know, and the, they've been in town, they've been in Oma and Eskil and Derry. You hear people with accents not from these places. They've been bussed up for free, you know. Um, so it really, really has intensified. For me, I immediately after you know the fuss died down uh, after you know we won repeal I was very 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 sad because I felt so disenfranchised and I remember I did a stall in Oma you know on the back of it I was like I can do it I can go to my hometown and you know stand up here and and it's not an easy thing to do you know and um you know, it just, I was exhausted from repeal. I'm sure, Emma, you understand too, the emotional exhaustion of, of de- dealing with these topics, these difficult, difficult topics, and, and, but then having to go back out again and back out again and back out again. And, you know, it's, and that doesn't stop. I got to meet, we, I have a meeting Tuesday night. We d- did a stall at Derry on Saturday. You know, it's, it's just chipping and chipping yeah. away. So I think as a woman, you know, as a woman in Northern Ireland, you're used to being the bottom of the pile. You're used to your rights not being um, in any way, you know, at the table. But as an Irish woman, especially, I felt so, I did, you know, and I did feel bitter. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not really a bitter person, but you know, it's just, it's very difficult. And I never expected Stella Creasy to, uh, to for for this amendment to go through. This it feels like it feels like stroke of luck, and we're um, we're counting the days to. We're, we're, I'm sure you are too, Emma. We'll, to, we'll move on to <laughs> Stella Creasy and Colin again in a wee second. But before we do. Emma, could I ask you the same question? Um, you know, you were heavily involved in repeal the 8th and um, how did you feel when the referendum was passed? And I suppose again, the second part of that question, um, what's your views on the denial of them um, rights that were won in the South that currently you do not have as a citizen in the North? Uh, I can totally 100% relate to everything that you said, <laughs> in a lot of ways. But with the added extra of being a part of the diaspora, the mm-hmm. Irish diaspora, I was part of a group of about 20 activists based in Brussels who were fundraising, campaigning, lobbying MEPs inside of the parliament, doing a lot of grassroots activists, uh, activism back in Brussels, and uh, generally also putting abortion on um, abortion rights on the European map as well, because it, it highlighted the issue mm-hmm. and across other countries. Um, but I was the only one, the, the only naughty in the group, as they would have said. And uh, it always, sometimes she just felt that slightly bit othered, in a way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I felt very emotionally connected to the cause. Of course, me, for me, it was going to benefit women in the North just as much as it would benefit yeah. women in the South. So I had an emotional investment in doing everything. Uh, with people from Dublin, Cork and so forth, even if uh, they did look at me a bit strangely sometimes. Um, I remember when the results came in, we organised, so a lot of my friends who are in the group uh, actually went home to vote. Watching that happen as well from a distance, I, I cried my eyes out. I just It was just so moving, seeing that level of emotion and dedication to make mad journeys from Australia to America. I think it was one from like um, even like Latin American stuff. Yeah. There was all the there Guatemala. was a Facebook group, yeah, uh, home to vote, and people were just PayPaling each other money. It was money. amazing. Yeah. It yeah. Was, I mean, that is unbelievable. It was it was insane mm-hmm. seeing this level of solidarity mm-hmm. and really helping mm-hmm. each other out. It was so inspiring. Felt a little bit jealous as it, well. It was crazy. I remember even um, back back then when that was happening. Like you just, it was just nothing else was talked about in social yeah. media. It mm-hmm. was just constantly, and as you alluded to there, if you followed certain threads, people saying, you know, there's there's eighty quid, there's fifty yep. quid, you know, mm-hmm. I'll 
will get you home yeah. somehow. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. it was mad. So we organised a little screening uh, inside one of the Irish pubs in Brussels on the day of the results. Obviously, the the initial sort of poll was highlighted mm-hmm. um, uh, the night before, but we were all kind of like shocked. And I'm really like, no, it couldn't be that high. No, this must be an error. I don't know. But we came in, and there was a couple, actually, MEPs from uh, other countries, from, like, um, uh, uh, from like the Greens in Germany and Netherlands actually turned up to watch the results with us. It was, mm-hmm. it was pretty cool mm-hmm. to see, like, the attention from Europe being, watching Ireland to see what Ireland yeah. wanted to do. Yeah. Um, felt very exposed in a way too mm-hmm. it's like oh everyone's watching us let's not screw this yeah. up you know for so long you didn't have anybody watching <laughs> yeah, them, no. yeah yeah exactly it was even unnerving sometimes um but when, when when the results came in and then it was finally over just remember feeling like this sort of bittersweet sort of feeling mm. felt very despondent in a way too because like yourself i felt like oh sh- of course we're left behind again mm-hmm. and uh, I just remember going, well, didn't, didn't cry, just felt very despondent, mm-hmm. very empty, mm-hmm. and a wee bit angry as well. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, so coming home and actually, so our group, a lot of people dropped out of the group after mm-hmm. after the referendum. There's a few dedicated ones stayed behind, right, left, sort of the north. Mm-hmm. And they're the ones that I... That will forever have a special place in my wee heart, because um, that was just they, nice. They, they've us. now got the easiest job sorting out the north. Yeah. <laughs> no, no. I think people are um, reticent about the north because, and I think you see it um, with the support from GB as well. They just don't know what to do about it because yeah. yeah. it means confronting certain things yeah. about the history of the north yeah. and, and yeah. you know complicity it or whatever. It opens up a bigger yes. subject, probably. It, it was. I had to. I have to. I had to kind of brief them on political parties yeah. the sort of you know the interactions the between certain groups who we are. yeah mm-hmm. and i could see them actually being mentally challenged in some ways yeah. like, like a lot of their like mm-hmm. oh okay okay you know and you know since then we have been trying to do our best from of course the distance we've been fundraising for lands for choice i know the abortion abortion support network and we have been trying to do um, op-eds and uh, letters mm. to the editor in Brussels just to highlight, you know, this in- the continued injustice on the island of Ireland in the UK. Um, that it's not it's not end game, mm-hmm. you know. It's still it's still continuing. And I will say one thing though about repeal that has been beneficial for us as well as as the obvious, but it it has made it it has made it a subject. It's professionalised it somewhat. Mm. It's not the vanguard anymore. Um, you know, you, 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 people are more open to giving you a space to, yeah. to write a wee bit. I would imagine You're not to be dismissed. Yes, yeah. I would imagine even to have done a podcast with two uh, pro-choice activists uh, three or four years ago, maybe two or three years ago, mm. would have been mm. who would want to listen to that? Who wants to talk about that subject? Yeah. Um, so it definitely, um, it, in that way, it's it's very good. But it's interesting too the as you say, I mean, the perceptions that other countries have about our rights as, as part of the UK even because I went to um, South Africa last summer to present a paper on um, Northern Ireland politicians attitudes towards abortion liberalisation and um, audience members A couldn't believe these are uh, women from Zimbabwe from, from South Africa itself from all, all around the world New Zealand you know it was a fabulous way to to uh, to meet other activists and you know you think you'd have nothing in common but so many of them are still ruled by the 1861 offences yeah. against the person because they were also colonies of the British Empire so we really were able to connect and yeah. brainstorm but they couldn't believe that um, that some are part of the UK had such draconian laws and and then similarly whenever we my presenter Rachel Waters and I the co-presenter we trace sort of the evolution of political parties attitudes to reproductive justice and many of them were very shocked by Sinn Féin as well given Sinn Féin's vocal support of apartheid or mm-hmm. you know against apartheid mm-hmm. in South Africa so many of them they, this was sort of the only party they knew of from Ireland yeah. and they were so shocked at, at the push and the you know the pulling and pulling and dragging it took for 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 incremental change even you know yeah. so uh, but the, but the the professionalization of it and, and the global struggle is is our power source i really believe completely i i never felt so much i for me during repeal it was the best period of my young life I like to think and 
I never felt so much connected, so much connectedness on this island. Mm -hmm. I, I felt like I could just talk to you, strike up conversation with a guard from Cork, and we will ramble yeah. on about repeat yeah. all day. Mm -hmm. And I, I felt like it did so much good for the for our island and as mm -hmm. a whole. I felt like it, it, it sort of like people who were like probably you know yourself there would probably be some on twitter who would come from pul background mm -hmm. they got so invested in it as oh well oh my god it the pul women yeah. did so much for repeal yeah. they came down on buses they organized Completely. the strategies the, the solidarity the tr i mean true true solidarity that the pul women of of the north showed was breathtaking and I think this is the power of feminism as a whole mm. it really does break down barriers yeah. if you just look at it from a very empathetic intersectional way mm -hmm. any issue put that lens on it yeah it, it, it can do wonders yeah. absolutely yeah. because I, I'm sure you'd agree with me Emma when we talk about solidarity and connection uh, that is utterly grassroots because in my in my experience any of the politicians well the vast majority of, of elected representatives didn't touch it yeah, you know it was very much mm -hmm. grassroots. They mm -hmm. had to be dried, kicking and screaming. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, in a recent amendment uh, by Stella Creasy and Labour MP Conor McGinn, means that Westminster will legislate for same-sex marriage and women's rights by the 21st of October, unless power sharing is restored here in Stormont. I suppose a couple of wee quick questions, ladies. Is this a victory for campaigners? Do you think? And secondly. Does this let the DUP off the hook in terms of delivering the rights without them, I suppose, being involved? Uh, Emma, do you want to shoot first on that one? <laughs> I guess I will. <laughs> um, yes, I mean, when it was announced, I was kind of in shock. I, I don't know, maybe this is just typical, mm -hmm. you know, us... Uh, <laughs> Glass half empty, Northern I, Ireland. Yeah, like, is this real? You know, it was like, is this? Too, it felt too good to be true when it yeah. was announced. Um, obviously, I was thrilled. A wee, again, a bit despondent. Again, I just felt like uh, it's not real, and I don't know. I think we're just not used to getting anything good. So yeah. that's that's how how I initially felt. I think it's great that we have had Stella and Connor on our side, helping us in Westminster and pushing these rights forward mm -hmm. and putting it on the agenda. Um, I don't know if we would have got there without them um, in, in the sense that they have, because of the situation right now in Westminster, I mean, we have no storm out, so we had to mm -hmm. utilize Westminster to, I did, for me personally, I would have loved to have seen them being in Stormont if we had the perfect ideal situation, but we don't, so we have to go through Westminster. Mm -hmm. You know, sometimes you just have to put aside principles and look at the practicalities. At the end of the day, this is women's health. Did it take the shine off it? But as you said, it would have been better if we could have done it here. I don't know if the numbers would have worked in our favour in regards to abortion. Same-sex marriage, I think we don't want free abortion. I don't know. With there's You have SDLP who are essentially still a pro-life, well, I'm going to say anti-choice party. And we have UEP and Alliance who are this conscious vote so I'm assuming there's members in their parties that are not 100% mm -hmm. pro-choice yeah and TV DV mm. I'm assuming the numbers just don't stack up yeah, yeah well I actually am very well placed to answer this because yeah. I did uh, a big survey this is what I presented on in South Africa uh, my uh, co-presenter Rachel Waters and I did a study of everyone running for election in the first Stormont election in 2016 we rang every single person emailed them and got their position on uh, on abortion so now it was very crude and we've times have changed but we asked them if they would support uh, you know liberalization in, in cases of uh, fetal, fetal abnormality mm. sexual crime yeah. or do they support extension of the 67 act this is before we started really advocating for decriminalize and we do not have Stormont does not have anywhere near that's what I thought yeah, yeah. so yeah. Mm -hmm. I think for abortion it needs to come from Westminster yeah. mm -hmm. But I think it's important to stress that just because elected representatives have a personal view, um, that is not representative of the will of the people of the Northern society, Ireland, yeah. which Amnesty International, which the Life and Time Survey have repeatedly stated that over 80% support uh, liberalisation of abortion laws. But I will draw attention just um, to some interesting cases that I found in regards to that, which challenge sort of the this idea of, of who supports and who, who doesn't support abortion. Um, I don't know if you guys recall 
call uh, Ruth Patterson. She was yeah. a member of the DUP. Yeah. I think she's still Belfast City. Maybe oh. she left Belfast City Council. But um, she was independent at the time anyways. And um, I rang her to, to ask her her position on, on abortion, expecting to be really maybe hung up the phone on, you know. Ruth Patterson is as pro-choice as I am. She... Gave me a, told me a horrible story about a girl that she knew who had to seek a, a backstreet abortion. Um, you know, talked about the injustice, how it was a class issue. She knew exactly what the the problem, the issues that women face are, and because you know, but you wouldn't have known that because she was under that DUP umbrella yeah. and voting with the whip. Yeah. You know, so again, there's there's huge chinks there in the armor. But as long as I think parties are sticking to this yeah. this whip kind of stance, would never get um would never get changed. And just to point out as well, after it repealed, there was a lot of talk about let's have a referendum in Northern Ireland. But we don't need a referendum in Northern no. Ireland on these issues. It is as simple as Stella Christie table and an yeah. amendment, as we as we now see. There's no need for that. People talk about the success of the marriage and um, uh, repeal the referendums. What they don't talk about is, is the spikes of depression that occurred in activists after these um, after these referendums in particular. The spikes in in depression. Depression. Mm-hmm. For the if you can look especially for LGBT uh, communities, the spikes in depression after they um, got marriage equality through are huge. And why do you think that is? It's because they have to go out and doorsteps and justify their existence. To every Tom, Dick, and Harry in, in Ireland, you know, you know, and that's that's what you do when you go out and canvas. You stand on people's doorsteps and you say, "Please, please acknowledge my right to to get married. Please acknowledge my right to have bodily autonomy." You know, that is what you're essentially doing, and the the emotional trauma of that. Um, you know, something I would never have thought about that. Only you mentioned it, but mm-hmm. now that you've brought my attention to it, that's mm-hmm. crazy. Mm-hmm. It is. It's not easy. <laughs> it's not easy. Like, no. I mean, mm-hmm. having these difficult conversations as well. I mean, I remember when repeal first started, and I've always like my mum and my sister, my family have always been quite vocal with being pro-choice. The rest of them are. We've always been a bit. Um, oh, I don't know. You know, I went to a Catholic school, so of course it was drummed into us on our RE class that uh, you know. Life is precious and all that stuff, and it wasn't scientific or factual education that we were getting. It was just religious dogma. And I see so many women, young women in particularly, still in my community, um, are still caught in this trap. And it's not until you actually read into the complexities of abortion and that it's not as simple as, oh, it's not a contraception, it's actual health care. Some women have to have abortions for health reasons. You know, it's, it is, it's not black and white. And this is what really bothers me. Uh, recently, like, I'm just home for, for the past week, and on my Facebook, I see a load of wee girls I went to school with posting fake information from certain anti-choice groups. And it's, it's, it's disinformation, it's fake news. And they're not being challenged. They, these groups are not being challenged, and it's so harmful to what we're trying to do, you know. Mm-hmm. And I, I feel like these conversations need to be brought into the wider public as mm-hmm. well, mm-hmm. and they need it needs to be put into schools. Sex education needs overhauled big time, mm-hmm. and this needs to be focused on. Mm-hmm. Even in terms not just abortion, but that LGBT people exist. Yeah. I mean, you're in school, and you know you're 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 not getting uh, an education that that talks about your identity, mm-hmm. you know, and that is what produces that trauma of having to come out, you know, and is exacerbated by the fact that you have to stand on doorsteps and 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 you know advocate for your own sort of existence. But that's you know people dismiss feminism and say, oh, you know, it's you know you're a harpy or whatever. But um, as you said earlier, Emma, when you apply feminist lens to social issues, to any issues. To Brexit, if you get feminism in there, then you're more likely to create a solution that empowers all. I actually think this relates back to some of the events that we're seeing this past weekend. Northern Ireland, toxic masculinity mm-hmm. is rife within working class communities. I grew up in a working class community. I, I've seen the consequences of it. See if we just combated this 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 toxic masculinity in yeah. schools. I feel like our communities would be so, in so much more 
better place yeah. within themselves as well. Mm-hmm. Um, for one thing, the suicide rates yeah. that are obscene in Northern Ireland, the young men, it's it's a plague on young men. It is, the young men are beautiful, healthy young men dying in their droves. Three, three times more here in the north than anywhere else. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, we're one of the highest rates in Europe. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Like that is all to do with our, our post-conflict traumatised society and this idea of that being a man means that you can't emote that you can't speak, that you have to be the big boy, you know, out in your groups, hyping each other up. And, you know, it's people can't cope. People can't cope underneath the, the weight of expectancy of what it is to be a young man. Um, and that, and, and again, you know, this this patriarchy that we live under here in Northern Ireland, um, I think Eileen Everson, the academic, called the Troubles an Armed Patriarchy, which is something that I find absolutely spot on because, you know, it was a it was a man's war, you know. Yeah. Even in terms of um, women who were combatants, you know, they were given subsidiary roles within um, paramilitary organisations. You know, they were the ones smuggling in um, information into jails. They were the ones being the honey traps. You know, we are we need to break our society down so that this toxic masculine to save our young men, you know, as well as to empower women. Yeah, completely. Mm-hmm. I mean, has the role of women in helping to shape Ireland, North and South, been undervalued, possibly? Do you want to go first or I? <laughs> <laughs> I might not stop. <laughs> go on ahead, you first, Emma. Go ahead, Emma. Well, a short answer, yes. Um, but if you... I mean, this, this is such a big question. I feel like you could go right back to the early revolutionaries where you look at... Actually, you can, you can go right back to Parnell, his sisters, mm-hmm. Fanny and Anna, <laughs> written out of history, overshadowed by their brother, and look at how women were treated in activism, even right back to the 1800s, mm-hmm. right up to Hannah Sheehy Skivington, and look what happened after De Valera became president. He created the state of comely maidens and basically <laughs> created this constitution that did not favour women. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I would like to think the Countess Meklevich and all Emmons would be turning their graves. They had a seen how Ireland actually developed over the past hundred years. Uh-huh. It was, it was not a state for women, it, and I think this actually, and up north, even when we think about women, they were not passive creatures in this conflict. You know, whether or not they were community activists, whether or not they were in poly- involved in power, power militaries, they were there. But mm-hmm. the conflict is so has a male face. When, when when the men were interned in communities, who 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 was the backbone? Yes. It was women. Yes, it was queen. women. They were like, <laughs> Mike Arney is my absolute hero. You mm-hmm. should. I, I love coming home and just listening to her stories and just how she talks about how women banded together back then. It, it's so moving, and we don't talk about this enough. I think social history is so important, and women are actually always at the forefront when you actually look really underneath the surface of this level of political maleness, you know, these, mm-hmm. and this is actually one of the reasons why I reached out to you guys, because I feel like the conversation right now, the com- there's a conversation developing, actually no, it started, the conversation started, but it is becoming very male-dominated already, and it's so important that women's voices in regards to what does a new Ireland look like are there, and they're part, they're on that stage with the men. Yes. Yeah. And Absolutely. Mm-hmm. That's why you bet me. <laughs> I suppose just to look at things now, if you look at uh, political parties, you have got um, Michelle O'Neill, the leader of Sinn Féin in the North. You've got Mary Lou Macdonald, leader of Sinn Féin as a party. You've Arlene Foster, leader of the DUP. You've got Naomi Long, leader of the Alliance Party. You've got Claire Bailey, leader of um, the Green Party in the North. And then I suppose. Recently, you had Theresa May, mm. Prime Minister of um, Nicola Sturgeon. Mm-hmm. Uh, you could go on into Europe. So, would it not be fair to say as well that women have definitely, um, no. you know, no. taken more no. of a front seat in recent years? I, if, you, if you even look at a couple of Irish <laughs> Irish presidents and Mary Robinson, right. no, no. So, <laughs> Wait, so you I'm, can take I'm, I'm going to get attacked here now. No, because I've actually recently ran a campaign on the EU elections on this very topic. Okay. <laughs> so, right up prior to the elections there, European Parliament only had 36% women. 
okay. and that was and since the the conception of the European Parliament, it was it's been we have not our, our representation has not actually increased significantly okay. since women got the vote. Mm -hmm. it, it's been so slow. What we need, I can't remember the actual stats stat in the local elections. It's been a while since I looked at them, but it hasn't. That women are not. You, you can have leaders, but they're not actually getting into the, these more local levels yeah. of politics. Yeah. And I think for me that's really important, especially when we need the gender lens on issues. Yes. And political parties could be doing so much more. Well, one they can have, they can actually have the super method where they have man, woman, man, woman, and they look at constituencies where a woman's more likely to get elected. In, in Belgium, for instance, very recently at the MEP elections there, a political party called Flans Blant, who are right-wing extremists, because underneath Belgium law, you are allowed, you, it's mandatory to have at least one woman up as a, a candidate. Yeah. And what they did, she got elected, she then dropped her position and a man took over. <laughs> like, and now it's just a male-dominated party. And the, there's, there's not enough safeguards, there's not enough actual mechanisms to really show, to really put women in leadership positions. Women are not represented, or else I would be out of a job if we were, if we were 100%, because <laughs> that's what I do. Well, I would yeah. also say as well that, like, as a feminist, you know, you come up against your argument uh, quite frequently. Oh, you know, and there's so many f women leaders. By, you know, by, by hush up way, now, they, hush up. They're not my views. I'm only posing. I'm No, but I mean, there's there's a huge difference in you know a feminist in power, yes, uh, as opposed to someone like Theresa May or Arlene yes. Foster, whose yeah. whose policies, the the two child um, tax, for example, the the bedroom tax, yeah. um, you know, are are specifically anti women. So I mean. For me, um, I mean, I'm I'm unashamed about this. I I support gender quotas, me too. Um, yeah. And I and I fervently want more feminists, in particular, in um, in power. And actually, of, of the women that you listed, I would really say that uh, Claire Bailey from the Greens would be the only woman there who I think is a politician that has the interests of women at heart. Um, and I think just back to that question, sort of, it kind of interlinks with, you know, have, have women in Ireland been erased? Um, and, you know, it, it makes me think of, um, there's research been done, a colleague I know in, in Maynooth, Claire McGing, she looks at uh, female political participation in the Republic. And she, um, I was talking to her and she let me know that uh, women got, more women got into power. Well, the, the only route for women to get into power in the Doyle and Devil Airs Ireland was if their husband had died. Yeah. And the widow then occupied the husbands. Yeah. So th I mean that shows you just how marginal women are. Yeah. And it's it's uh, and you know you get this claptrap about oh it's the best person for the job, the best person for the job. Um, I don't really care. <laughs> get a woman in, skill her up, and and you know then she'll be the best for the job. Yeah. There's lots of and there's there's a few initiatives down south. I think it's called women, women for election. They basically so what what was actually interesting from repeal, lots of these activists who were very active down south were then looking at rep political representation of women as the next big issue, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and they turned their eyes onto the European Parliament as next step. Oh, mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. And um, news mavens is what was this EU pro um, EU project that looked specifically at. Uh, women's issues around Europe in, in, a, in a media lens and they at the end of the project they did they compiled this 28 country report looking at one issue that is that focuses in that country and they looked at Ireland and they said it was political representation of women mm -hmm. it's it's honestly it's not it's not as black and white it's mm -hmm. really really mm -hmm. yeah. low just because we have women leaders uh -huh. if you actually look at the numbers yes. right down it's not that high I accept that yeah. point and yeah. I would say as well that uh, depending on the identity of the woman they're subject even more to marginalisation because if you look at the European movement you know we're, we're talking so pleasingly about it um, and you trace Irish feminism back 
really it was Anglo-Irish suffragettes mm -hmm. who many of whom um, stood up against um, the First World War many of whom who, who didn't support this um, push for you know for Irish revolution who, who, who fervently stood for the vote for women this was their key issue they have been so erased as well and like the seeds if, if we if the, if the success of repeal you know, if, if we want to look at it clinically, then the seeds of that were sown by Anglo-Irish women. Mm -hmm. And because of what happened in, in the South, and, you know, we can think of, you know, the burning of the big houses, just, just trying to, you know, purposely erase colonial history. Um, you know, that, that has taken a lot of important stories mm -hmm. and, and lives um, that really need to be sort of unearthed and, and, and rediscussed, you know. Um, and that that's, you know something that needs to be done I think by I, I also want to just bring on to another somewhat related point is that a lot of a lot, one of the reasons why women do not go in to politics per se is the misogyny that they face <laughs> yeah I mean look at the the women's coalition look at the backlash they were instrumental in yeah. Good Friday Agreement they mooed at them the they, DUP mooed know, exactly. at Monica, Monica McWilliams exactly mm. and y you even see it now on Twitter like with mm -hmm. I feel like Naomi Long is targeted yeah, pretty much. she gets a lot of experience. She's, she's well able to stick up for herself. <laughs> she, she is. Lots of women from Sinn Féin actually got really targeted too. And I, I've even seen a fair bit. So and then a little thing I was going to say that too. Mm -hmm. Her and Arlene mm -hmm. get, often get it. What's she wearing? And and then you get you know your Sunday World spread of who who wore it best. Oh my god! You know if there's one thing actually, if you could get all those women who are who have come to issues with such different opinions and set them down with a cup of tea and said, "Ladies, let's talk about online abuse," mm -hmm. they would come out firm friends. You know. Now you've just give um, me an idea for a podcast. Here. <laughs> <laughs> well, I would be careful that it's not a man chairing the podcast. Oh. <laughs> Sure, maybe we could get one of you two good ladies, or both of you to host that one on Shared Ireland's behalf. Only if we can have dartboards, you know. With <laughs> <laughs> okay, listen, time is, um, we're 51 minutes in here, right. so um, we'll just skip along. Um, when we look south, we see a multicultural society, while the north appears to be lagging behind, with progress being held up or hampered. Is it possible to tackle these issues without turning everything into green and orange politics, Maeve? Absolutely it is. How? Absolutely. <laughs> By, again, reiterating what I've said, applying a feminist lens to these issues. And, you know, people might say, oh, you're being idealist, you're being overly hopeful. But I do believe that we are at a tipping point. I think that the Trump administration, that Boris Johnson, it's the last sting of a dying bee of this white, male, misogynistic, conservative, upper class, you know, lifestyle that has been so dominant in Western society. If we can get feminism... You know, if we can even get feminism as something that should be approached, you know, it's not this dirty word anymore. You, there's, there's academic work. You know, there's different types of policy that can be used. If we can embrace women who are the change makers in our communities, bring women together from different green orange backgrounds, and not forgetting the sizable, um, you know, BME population we have now, bring women together apply different lenses, apply um, feminism, apply eco-friendly um, you know, points of view to issues and it, it gives them a completely different complexion. You think you're, you're going round and round and round in circles talking about Brexit and borders and backstops. Apply a, an environmental lens to that. What can be done about the fisheries, about different communications, you know, how, how can how can things be strengthened? How can we, you know, maybe deal with different problems using these different avenues? Mm -hmm. The possibilities are endless. We just need the space to be opened to, to allow that to happen. And, you know, as Emma said earlier, seeing um, in feminist activism and I, in, in Northern Ireland, green and orange isn't there. We are unified. We are sisters that stand together. And I cannot express that, you know, more passionately. Um, I mean, I'm from rural Catholic background some of the best people I've met are you know from the shipbuilding community even my wee story you said about when you were going holidays sitting beside the woman yeah. from the shankle exactly yeah. exactly you know that there's power in that yeah there of course really, there is. Really, absolutely um, and it's just a matter of of allowing that to happen more yeah. and more you know Emma Can you repeat the question again? Yeah, of I just course. Wanna, that was a bit, I, I which is really absorbing what you were saying. The general yes. gist of the question was the South, um, you know, is now 
seen as a multicultural society and things have moved on with great leaps and bounds and I suppose the North has been perceived as being the poor relation now and I suppose ultimately the question was is it possible to tackle these issues without everything being turned into a green and orange sort of a debate you know? I think there is but I think comparing the North to the South is quite difficult mm. because down South they are a constitutional republic yeah. up North you know systematic change is a bit more complex yeah. it really does take that level of cross-community activism and people banding together were down south they have the luxury of having a constitution that's shaped by the people yeah um therefore they can assert the change directly to power whereas mm. it's not so straightforward here yeah. so i think that's the main thing for me it's it we can't do it but it's just that comparison's a bit strange okay yeah okay. yeah mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> i don't know if you agree no, yeah, yeah yeah absolutely and mm. even even just in the struggle for reproductive justice the mm. different avenues yeah. that you have to take you know exactly mm-hmm. i suppose uh, throughout this series of uh, podcasts um a clear message that has um been talked about and is that are we able to move on as a society properly um, to shape a new Ireland, a shared Ireland, until we deal with our past. And I suppose what I mean by that, do we need some sort of a truth and reconciliation mm. progress? And I suppose a couple of wee questions. Would you agree that we do need mm-hmm. some sort of proper truth and reconciliation process? And secondly, would you have any ideas on how that would work and what needs to happen? Yeah, I would, um, just from my experience in the women's sector, there's some fantastic work going on utilising the arts and I think that that is a real um, inroad to uh, peace, to, to reconciliation to creating a safe space for people to come together and talk about I mean, the horrifying um, tragedies that people in Northern Ireland have been through and to connect with each other um, the Theatre of Witness programme that's run out of the Playhouse in Derry is just, it's transformative um, it has brought together people of all different backgrounds who have had just horrifying experiences and they they speak their truths um, in, in small groups um, and I mean you have people there Kathleen Gillespie whose husband was, was terribly terribly killed by the IRA um, and then you have Anne Walker who was a, a member of the IRA in Derry and they, they come together and they're actually friends now and to see that friendship and for them to sit and listen to each other it, it's so humbling and there's another group based out of Derry too it's uh, towards understanding and healing and they actually have an event in the Guildhall um, in Derry it's uh, women's voices valued voices um, so it's you know about letting people speak about what they've been through and they bring in music and, and theatre um, and I really think that it's that those soft skills you know that, that have the potential to, to let people realise we're all the same you know the tragedies and the hatred it's not who we are you know and, and unless we get that understanding um, then I can't see wider issues like flags and protests and parades yeah. or whatever being resolved because we don't see each other as 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 you know as humans we don't see each other as the same and we are you know um, so I mean I cannot um, you know speak highly enough of the, the good work that's been done in the arts uh, towards reconciliation and I really really strongly believe in maybe my humanities background coming in but that it's through reading it's through documenting stories it's through listening um, and you know even acting and plays and things that the true true reconciliation can can start Emma same question I'm going to come at this from a little bit of a personal point because my granddad was actually murdered in 1971 uh, on the Falls Road he was a postman by the UVF so this is very much a personal thing for me um, in terms of it's complicated in my family my granny kind of she's old now so she's kind of just stopped looking for justice I think there is this sort of feeling in many families that they're never going to get it um, which is really sad there's also a feeling yeah. uh, again from listening to people is that there's certain actors that are waiting for people to die off yeah. and generations to I suppose move on become and then, empathetic uh, yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah completely and um, I feel like that that I think that is the case of my family per se because um, that was what my granny wants she didn't want us to become burdened with carrying this trauma with us but then the problem with that if it's not dealt with say <sighs> within 20 years 
it moves on to a different generation and it keeps going on and snowballs and we're never going to deal with it then. I think this also relates back to what Maeve was saying that if we just had a wee bit more kindness, a bit more compassion for each other and trying to understand the other perspective, it would just do us all a wee world of good big time. I watched the play in Brussels, uh, is, it, is it Blue Green or Green or Blue? About the two um, border the Garda and the RUC guy. Mm. Oh, I cannot remember the guy who wrote it, but it was over in Brussels in the play, and it was basically it was a very simple concept. There was the RUC guy and the Garda guy, and without giving the spoiler, it just it was them two getting to know each other and actually becoming quite friendly and getting uh, trying to understand each other mm-hmm. a bit more. And in the end, something sad happens, and you can you, I felt personally quite challenged mm-hmm. emotionally and. Uh, it made me start thinking about it more. So again, mm. this relates back to the arts, that it can be very powerful. But mm. I, the main problem with that is, how do we get the arts to really reach the communities? Yes, exactly. Because I do think there is a bit of a, a working class void oh. of getting near the arts. You're right. And mm-hmm. yeah, especially with the fountain cups as well. Yeah, exactly. Arts organisations supposed to yeah. to get in and, and negotiate with gatekeepers. So, so I do think mm-hmm. arts has a way, but it needs to be funded and it actually needs to be segregated to the communities that was actually the, impacted the most. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Emma, for sharing it with us. No worries. Yeah, absolutely. Second last question, ladies. As Irish citizens in the north, how do you feel Brexit will affect you, and particularly the growing threat of a no-deal Brexit? Maeve? Gosh. Back to Brexit before I know. we go. <laughs> if we knew what it would entail, I could give a stronger answer. Yes. Um, all I can say is that I'm going to keep keep doing what I'm doing. Yeah. And uh, hopefully wing it, you know. <laughs> but uh, no, um, I, I just hope for the best. I hope for the best. But I can't really... I, I really... We're, we're as much... You know, we're just heading into the abyss, really. And it's how we cope. Emma? My own personal take is that no deal looks closer by the day. It's kind of what my feeling has been for a while, but since Boris has taken over, I feel like it's kind of now even confirmed that that is more likely going to be the outcome. I'm nervous. I'm nervous for our community specifically in regards to our citizenship rights. And I don't know if there's more sinister actors in play on Mm -hmm. more higher levels. What's the consequences of that? Um, but we just have to wait and see, really, uh, which is really annoying, yeah, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I'll squeeze in one last one, maybe. The, su- the success of the same-sex marriage referendum and repeal it was rightfully down to people-led movements. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think the same has to happen in regards to the Unity New Ireland movement? Yeah. Civic society, mm-hmm. women. Everybody needs to, you know. Absolutely. I mean, the the citizens' assembly, you know, blueprint is something that that should be absolutely employed, and it should be bringing people, as Emma says, from communities that are, you know, specifically affected, yeah. communities that are traumatized, communities that have borne the brunt yeah. of the troubles. Like those voices, absolutely need to be heard. And as well, you know, um, the PUL community, their voices are so important, and. You know, we have to create safe spaces for everyone to get their point of view together. And honestly, if it's a, you know a United Ireland, you know that that doesn't allow you know orange marches, expression of culture that I might not particularly be fond of, but I mean, people involved have every right to express. Yeah, it's not my Ireland, you know. Yeah, correct. For me, as a movement, it's so important that so that the that whatever comes in the next few years in regards to the movement on this island, that it is representative of all the different sections of the community. It needs to be intersectional. Mm-hmm. It needs to be cross-sectoral as well. It needs to be beyond political parties. As like, I cannot stress enough that this needs to come from a grassroots level. Mm-hmm. This needs to be steer-headed from that level rather than... Fine Gael if they ever get there and uh, Sinn Féin it needs to be for me and New Ireland goes beyond political parties it, it, it stems from the communities mm-hmm. it stems from wanting a better a better life for the people who I grew up with and for everybody on this island and that means having everybody's voices counted in that yeah, yeah absolutely Maeve mm-hmm. who do you admire? 
I admire, I admire women. <laughs> I don't, I, specifically, the like the work of um, black feminist writers like uh, Angela Davis, for yes. example. Uh, you know, fiction writers Maya Angelou, Toni Morrison. Um, took me a long time you know you're you're educated in a predominantly white curriculum it took me a long time to discover the words and work of black feminists and it has transformed my life my politics my activism and we are indebted to to black women writers and um activists so emma yes you, i totally agree with that yeah. <laughs> who do you admire emma well i'm going to bring it back home a bit more and say bernadette Devlin. i just love how Kickass, she was. You're, you're like that, maybe a troll woman. Yeah. Yep. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> no, but she, she was, she was instrumental in the civil rights movement. I just loved how authentically she is herself, and she is like that to this day. And I think she's brilliant. Okay. Last question, and I promise. Um, who will we go to? Uh, go to Maeve first. <laughs> If you could invite three people to your oh, fictional okay. dinner party, <laughs> who would they be, and more importantly, why? Oh, okay. Well, then I would have to have. I would have to have Sylvia Plath. I would, <laughs> you know, she would be maybe the the more intense member of the party. But um, and I would have. I would have. I could have Angela Davis for the crack, and then you know what? A bit of Stevie Nicks, just for the crack. Oh, that's <laughs> no, so good. No, no, no men. Oh God, no! Oh, certainly not. Mm, Women's faces are where no yeah. crack is. Trust me. Okay, um, Emma. Same question. Who would uh, three people you invite to your fictional dinner party, and they can be alive or dead? Uh, Gloria Steinem. Oh. Uh, Martina Anderson, because I think she would be really mixed up a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> um, push the boat out a bit more of the conversation. And, oh, third one. Ah. There's this brilliant feminist in Brussels called Joanna Maycock, who is the head of the European Women's Lobby, and she's fantastic. And I've actually had dinner with her, and she's great crack. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> Very we should good. combine our dinner parties. Yeah, we should. <laughs> well, I would like to thank you for inviting me along. Yeah. <laughs> Apparently, no man allowed. You can serve. You yeah. can. Oh my God, I can serve. <laughs> I won't answer that one. In New Ireland, men can serve. Okay. <laughs> On that note, Emma Rennie and Maeve O'Brien, it's been an absolute pleasure. Um, speaking to you today thank you. and yes, on thank you. behalf of myself and Shared Ireland and our listeners I'd like to thank you very much for giving up your time I certainly have learnt a lot listening to you and hopefully so will our listeners and hopefully we'll talk again in the very near future absolutely yes, thank, thank you, you. Yeah. Be great. <laughs> so folks thanks for listening and if you do like what you heard today yeah. maybe a retweet would be much appreciated thanks speak soon bye bye okay.